1: Ukraine woke to explosions around the capital, Kiev. They came with an ominous message from Russia's president. Whoever would try and stop us and further create threats to our country should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history.
0: The West responded by imposing sanctions. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Support poured in from all over the world.
1: From Istanbul, to Detroit, and Chicago,
0: millions young and old speaking with one voice saying, we stand with Ukraine. But as time has passed and the initial shock has faded, the world's gaze has shifted. Six months on, what is happening on the ground in Ukraine?
1: It's the country that i spent more than 11 years working on and in. And just to see the scale of destruction that the Russian forces have visited on Ukraine, the way that it's deliberately targeting infrastructure, it's depressing.
0: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the war in Ukraine, Putin's great misjudgment.
1: I'm Maxim Tucker. I'm an assistant foreign editor with The Times. I'm a former Kiev correspondent. I was based in Kiev between 2014 and 2017, covering the previous hybrid invasion of Ukraine by President Putin's forces. Going to cities that I had been to before in in a kind of happier mood. And, you know, when I used to take Russian classes in Odessa, you can have a great time in that, that kind of seaside city. And now, you, you know, you can't even swim in the sea. There's a curfew at nine o'clock. You can hear artillery fire occasionally in the background. Rockets are coming off the Black Sea. It's an entirely different mood. And it's a real shame to see a country that you kind of fell in love with over time put in that situation.
0: And Maxim, you've just come back from Ukraine now. Just take us back to 24th February this year. Where were you and what were your thoughts?
1: I was in bed, it was, I think, four o'clock in the morning here, and I don't know why I woke up and I, I checked my phone just habitually and sometimes do it at night. And I had a text from a friend who just said, I can hear explosions. And the friend was in Kiev. I went over to my wife, as she's Ukrainian, she's from Kiev, and said, "I think it started." Hello, good morning, it's five o'clock, it's Thursday, it's the 24th of February. This is Times Radio Early Breakfast with Callum McDonald. This morning Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a special military operation in Ukraine's eastern Donbas region. The Ukrainian capital is still
0: under attack right now, off in the distance we just heard another explosion. It's one of a number of Ukrainian cities right now being targeted with Russian missiles.
1: It was something that had been anticipated, expected to a certain degree, but the, the scale of it when it happens is still shocking. When I was covering the war in, in eastern Ukraine, it was always a, quite a distant war from Kiev, where we lived. It was a, a strange thing that in six hours you could come back from a war zone and be in a metropolitan capital where life continued as normal. Kiev this morning is staring down the barrel of a Russian assault column that's reportedly up to 40 miles long. To see Russian tanks advancing in enormous columns on the town that you would lived in for so many years, the town that my wife is from, the town that I'd hoped that my son would spend time growing up in, is a real shock. And immediately we were thinking about our family members, friends who suddenly had to flee the country and trying to keep track of them all as they fled across to Western Ukraine and wondering about what the future would be like for them. Yeah, it was horrendous.
0: And did your friends and family all
1: manage to leave? They didn't, because there is a martial law in Ukraine which stipulates that men between the age of 18 and 55 have to stay in the country. So, you know, my father-in-law is 52, so he's just within that category. He's quite patriotic, and he was determined, like a lot of other men, to sign up and fight straight away. In the end they he is a little bit too old, so they didn't take him, which was an enormous relief because the whole time he was considering doing that, we were very worried, but at the same time, it means that it's six months into the war he's never seen his grandson. we have a ten month old baby, and we don't know when he will be able to meet them.
0: That must be incredibly difficult. Is there a sense that this could go on for a while? This could be a matter of years?
1: I think that's what the eventuality that we have to face, yes, I mean it's a war that's already been going on at on a smaller scale for eight years. And it actually seems that the hope that we might have had that Russians would not support this war and that it was really Putin's folly have not materialized. In fact, you see more and more Russians openly supporting the war. And Ukrainians get very frustrated in conversations with friends and family across the border who they've known for years, who simply won't believe that Russian troops are slaughtering Ukrainian civilians. I think we're in a position where the two nations are really at loggerheads now, and Russia is only prepared to accept Ukrainian surrender. So it's very difficult to see how we get out of this.
0: And Maxim, you've been following the war closely. Just talk us through where things stand now, six months into this invasion.
1: Well, I think we've seen a turning point. We've seen that the Russians have lost momentum. The Ukraine has dug in very effectively and as the war goes on, Ukraine is getting more sophisticated, more accurate weapons, and Russia is running out of those. I mean, it has enormous stockpiles of weapons going back to the Soviet era, which it it can dig into. But the ingredients are there for Ukraine to mount a counterattack. They've mobilized a a lot of men. You know, the the defense minister told me that they were aiming to have a million strong fighting force, which would allow them to be able to then launch a massive counterattack in the south. I think there's a possibility that if Ukraine gets the right amount of Western weapons, if it gets the right amount of support, it can force Russia back. But as long as the West is afraid of provoking Russia and afraid of the Russian nuclear threat, it's unlikely to provide the raw resources at the scale that are required. So we might end up seeing a stalemate where the West continues to provide Ukraine with just enough weapons to keep the Russians back, but not to emphatically defeat Putin's forces.
0: Having covered the war since 2014, you've watched Crimea go to Russia. And there was sort of a sense, I think a lot of people thought that was probably settled. The last few weeks, though, have been fascinating. I mean, just talk us through what's been happening and how it's felt to watch it.
1: I think the Ukrainians have always wanted Crimea back. It's been a kind of diplomatic red line for them in negotiations. What's happening now is interesting because I think the West has come to terms with the fact that if Crimea is to be returned to Ukraine, then it's going to be part of a military campaign. We've seen that the US is quite quietly backing Ukraine strikes on air bases in Crimea. We've seen huge explosions at ammunition depots. It's unclear whether that's an elite military special forces unit that is causing that, whether it's partisans or whether Ukraine has adapted a long-range missile. What's interesting there is You've had a Russian population where, because the war has been conducted on Ukrainian territory, they haven't really seen or had a flavour of the destruction and the brutality of war. And for Russian tourists to be on the beach in Crimea and to see explosions on a place they've considered their holiday home, I think will have an impact and it, it will signal that this war is real for Russians as well. I think that they can see that actually this is escalating. Unfortunately, that is not encouraging people to come out and protest against the war. It seems to be hardening attitudes.
0: When people do talk about how this ends, is there a sense that Ukraine won't settle for anything less than having Crimea back?
1: It's Putin's great misjudgment. If he'd continued taking little slices of Donetsk and Luhansk, it's unlikely that they would have seen the global reaction that he's had. And people probably would have accepted that Crimea was going to be under Russian control by kind of going completely overboard and trying to capture the whole of Ukraine. He's opened up all of those territories to military recapture by the Ukrainians. Ukrainians are very reluctant to accept anything less than a full victory now because they've paid so dearly for it in blood. And Crimea is very symbolic for Ukrainians. It's it's a place where, in mean, Russians and Ukrainians, used to holiday together. But you know, many Ukrainian families will have childhood memories of going to summer camp in Crimea. Their families would have been on holidays there. It's a kind of special place in many Ukrainians' hearts. Mm-hmm. And you also have an enormous Crimean Tatar community who've basically been expelled from Crimea, and those that remain have been systematically arrested, harassed, and occasionally tortured by the Russian authorities. Those people will want to see Crimea be free again.
0: It does feel like the Ukrainians really are taking the war to Russia's door. Mm. (laughs) They're sort of pushing back to the extent that they are now starting to attack over the border. You've actually met some of the special forces soldiers who are engaging in some of those battles. I mean, tell us a bit about that.
1: This is an incredibly brave group of young men who have decided that they will take the war to Russia and they're hitting Russian supply depots, Russian oil refineries, they're sabotaging communications networks and really operating in places that the Russians couldn't possibly expect them to be. I think what was really striking for me was that a lot of them had been fighting this war since 2014. So one of the guys had been fighting since he was 18 years old, and the other one had been fighting since he was 19. And that's really all they'd known was some kind of war with Russia. It's dominated their entire adult lives. It had normalized violence to an extent, which was sad. You know, they had ambitions before the invasion to, to start a gym or to work in IT and have a more settled life with hopes for a family in the future. And now they're drawn back into this kind of brutal conflict, which is shaping the entire nation and a generation of young people who won't be able to forget it. All these people are involved in fighting a war and all the entrepreneurial spirit is directed to fighting rather than developing the country.
0: It is desperately sad and horrendous that that's how they're having to live their lives. It's also incredibly courageous, you know, the things they're doing. Just tell us a bit about them as characters.
1: They're both young men. One is from Kiev and one is from Dnipro regions. They were introduced by their, their call signs. One was handsome and the other was 22. They're battle hardened. They've been fighting for eight years. They were used to it, and they talked very calmly about, you know, things like the best place to shoot a Russian is in the groin because it's underneath the ballistic plate. Things that we don't normally think about in our everyday lives are absolutely normal to them. They were very articulate, very eloquent. Could talk exactly about what motivated them, thinking about their families, the country, and what was really interesting to me was that both. Men who'd grown up with this war said that they were fighting so that the next generation wouldn't have to grow up with a war.
0: Were they able to talk to you about any of the things they'd done?
1: I mean, they'll talk in general detail about mm. operations they'd carried out. Occasionally, they'd say something that they then kind of decided they didn't want to share with the general public. There's always a balance here because they want people to know what they're doing, they want the Russians to know what Ukraine is capable of. And they want to dissolve this illusion that there was at the beginning of the war that there's no point supporting Ukraine because it will immediately capitulate to Russia and be defeated within three days. That's always foremost in Ukrainian soldiers' minds. They want to show that they're ready to fight. They want to show what they're capable of if they get Western weapons.
0: Coming up, how one Ukrainian grandmother saved her orphaned grandson from the clutches of the Russians. That's after a quick message from a colleague.
1: I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. I work from the front line of international politics and war, bringing you stories from Ukraine to Syria and Yemen. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk/forward/slash/stories-of-our-times.
0: Maxim, for you, what have been the key moments that have shaped the last six months? And in particular, your reports have been so good at bringing to life the stories of individuals that have marked that progress.
1: One of the things that I sought to do when I started covering the war in Ukraine was to reverse this attitude of Ukraine as a kind of hapless victim that wouldn't be able to fight the Ukrainians that I know and have grown to know over the last 11 years. It's a really important story to tell. And so I've sought out examples of that. One of them being this incredible grandmother. She'd left Mariupol a few years earlier while her daughter and grandson stayed in the city. And she was watching from afar with horror as the Russians just annihilated it. And Mariupol is now completely destroyed. And she was trying to stay in contact with them but eventually lost contact with her daughter, didn't know what had happened to her. By chance, the family saw a TV broadcast which was put out by Russian propagandists working in Donetsk, and they interviewed her 10-year-old grandson. And he was in hospital. He'd been wounded in both thighs, and his mother had been killed by Russian artillery fire. The propaganda show was trying to make out that the Russians had saved him. So she had this horrible moment of at the same time realising that her daughter had died and was gone and that her grandson was in danger in Russian-controlled territory and the Russians have been forcibly adopting these children and making it easier to assimilate them into the Russian state and try and re-educate them so that they forget about Ukraine and forget about their previous lives. And so she wanted to save him from this fate and she was incredibly determined to do that. She wrote to everyone that she could possibly imagine on the Ukrainian side to ask for help. And eventually she came to the attention of the deputy prime minister, Irina Vereshuk. And her grandson's case became the subject of a prisoner exchange negotiations in Istanbul. In the end, she ended up traveling to Poland, flying to Istanbul, meeting members of the delegations. Face-to-face talks wrapped up for the day in Istanbul between Russia and Ukraine. The first in-person talks between the two countries in two weeks. And she made her grandson a part of that. Then she took this incredibly brave decision as a Ukrainian to fly from Istanbul to Moscow, then to travel the very long journey down from Moscow to Donetsk to insist on her grandson being released into her care. Russia is not necessarily the uniform force that we think it is. There there are different factions, and especially in the Donetsk People's Republic, where her her grandson was being held. It's a pretty lawless state, really. She was dealing with all of that and taking all of that risk on when she went there. And then the grandson was so traumatized by the experience of losing his mother and being in a city that was obliterated by shell fire, he wasn't ready to go. And he was saying, no one wants me, no one needs me. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay here. And she had to deal with that, calm him down, persuade the doctors and nurses in the Donetsk People's Republic Hospital that he was fit to travel with her. And in the end, you know, despite their disagreements and objections, she managed to take him back to Moscow in a wheelchair, fly together with him to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul to Poland, to Warsaw, back over land on the train to Kiev, where he could be treated in a Ukrainian hospital. For me, that's an incredible story of resilience and bravery and selflessness that has so often inspired me in Ukraine and the importance of family to Ukrainians and what they'll do for each other in solidarity is really impressive. She sounds remarkable.
0: What was she like as a character?
1: She was very jovial. She found the fun side in everything. There was a lovely moment during the interview where he appeared in the room and she was talking about how he was a a miracle that she'd managed to get him back. And he said, I'm a miracle. I'm a gift from God.
0: Amazing that she's managed to get him out of the Donbass because we are starting to get reports of what life is like for the Ukrainians who are in those areas that are now occupied by the Russians. And just tell us what that's like.
1: In particularly, there is no running water at the moment. People have increasingly been leaving the city because there's just no hope, no future. You start a fire, you cook food. In the afternoon, you go find some work or get your dry rations to feed the children dinner. It's Groundhog Day, as they say. You wake up, and it's always the same. If they want to leave a Russian-controlled area, they need to pass through what the Russians call filtration camps, where the Russians will strip-search Ukrainians. They'll check their phones for anything that might be indicative of Ukrainian patriotism that can include messages that you had been sent on a telegram channel that didn't necessarily reflect your own views. And people are disappearing. There have been many instances of people being separated from the groups that they were travelling with and not been heard of since. And for sort of ordinary
0: bits of life, we're hearing now also reports about how much education, for example, is changing in some of those areas. Tell us a bit about that.
1: I spoke to the education minister last week and he talked about how the Russians are really trying to crack down on any form of Ukrainian education in the occupied territories. His ministry had been trying to keep education going online, using experience that they'd learned during the COVID-19 pandemic to try and ensure that children at least had a kind of remote education, even if they couldn't have a face-to-face education in Ukrainian schools. But they still rely on on the teachers to perform that role of checking up on students, making sure that they're They're cared for those teachers are are very obvious people you know that it's well known to the russian collaborators in the cities and they've been targeted by the russians to try and force them to teach the kremlin's curriculum which seeks to erase any idea of ukrainian statehood or identity since the beginning of the putin era the kremlin's citizenship
0: and education policy has been driven by something called the patriotic education program One of the strands of that program focuses on the teaching of history. And now it is being adapted for
1: schools in occupied Mariupol. There's a pressure now on the teachers to tell children a a version of history that just doesn't account for anything that's happened in Ukraine, including the fact that Kiev Rus', the ancient state, which is the kind of forefather to modern day Russia and Ukraine. The Russians' telling of this history is just to take out the name Kiev. They just call this ancient state Rus', even though it was centered in Kiev and grew out from Kiev. There's a real campaign of intimidation to install this Russian curriculum. Teachers have so far been refusing to go along with it, they've been refusing to work in the new school year, which starts in September, but the Russians have been very determined. They've been abducting teachers, they've been beating them, they've been torturing them. They are determined to impose this curriculum, so it will be interesting to see what happens on September 1st when children are due to go back to school.
0: Having been in Ukraine, from the conversations you're having with people there, how do they see this ending?
1: People don't know quite how it will end. You talk to soldiers, you talk to military intelligence and the army, in they very clear this is going to end with Ukraine's victory, and that's the only way it can end. It's very difficult to see any other way. Putin is clearly not prepared to compromise any deals that he's made in the past. He's then broken when they're inconvenient for him. You see even the the deal arranged to export Ukrainian grain from the country. This morning, fiery aftermath in the port city of Odessa from a Russian missile strike. One day after the country signed a UN agreement, promising safe passage for ships carrying vital grain, about 20 million tons sitting in port right now. That's done very deliberately. They wanted to undermine the deal. They wanted to undermine confidence in the deal and prevent ships going to collect Ukrainian grain. So the Ukrainians don't believe that there can be a negotiated settlement with Russia. And certainly it doesn't seem like there can be one as long as Putin is at the helm. They thought maybe if they kept the war going, for weeks and then months, that the West would impose sanctions that were hard enough to break the Russian economy. That hasn't happened. And so now people are really preparing for the long haul. They're thinking about this in terms of years and how they can live their lives in that situation. And I think the reality is, although a lot of Ukrainians have started returning to their country because they believe in it and they're patriotic. As the war drags on, it's going to be more and more difficult for people to eke out a living. The economic conditions are going to become increasingly difficult. And you'll see people again start to leave, not as refugees from conflict, but as economic refugees.
0: How do they feel about how the rest of the world has responded? I mean, are, are they are they annoyed that more hasn't been done?
1: It's been very interesting. As a British journalist meeting the Ukrainian military, they're always incredibly grateful for the support that the UK has given them. The training that we're providing in the UK and for Ukrainian servicemen, and how we've taken a lead in Europe on that. At the same time, there is a frustration that Europe continues to buy Russian oil and gas, that London continues to be a hub for Russian money, and we've we've sanctioned some oligarchs but certainly not all of them. We haven't really dealt with a system that allows dirty Russian money to course through the veins of London. And I think there's an expectation that Ukrainians are dying to protect other European states from Putin's expansionism.
0: And Maxim, you've been covering this war day in, day out now for six months. How difficult has that been? What impact has it had on you, both personally and professionally?
1: It's been extremely difficult to watch the war unfold, especially in the early days of the war. Our worst fears were that friends and families would be living under Russian occupation in Kiev and the surrounding areas that we might not be able to see them again, that they might be faced with the horrific consequences of Russian occupation, which have included torture and beatings and arrests for the most bizarre reasons. So our worst fears haven't really been realized, although that is a a horrible reality for many people that are on the front lines and behind the front lines in Russian-occupied territory. But now Ukraine has demonstrated it has a real ability to fight back, It's done things that no one thought that Ukraine would be able to do in pushing the Russian air force, which is much stronger, back out of Ukrainian airspace, above the territory that Ukraine controls, and stopped what was thought to be the second largest, most strong army in the world from taking more of its territory. Those things have inspired me. They've kept me somewhat optimistic about Ukraine's ability to end this war on its terms. But really so much depends now on Western support, on the West being able to continue to pay so much attention to this conflict, for Western audiences to continue to stay engaged and not forget about it in the way that we tend to forget about so many other wars which drag on.
0: Do you have any sense of when your father-in-law might be able to meet your son?
1: Personally, that's a very difficult thing about this conflict. We, We don't have any idea of when it's going to end as long as the conflict is ongoing. There will be martial law in Ukraine, which means that he can't leave. We could conceivably cross the border at Poland and meet him in a city like Vyv. But obviously my wife is very concerned about bringing our 10-month-old baby into the war zone, even if it's in the far western reaches of the country. So at some point, we'll have to make a difficult decision. If we want to see him, we'll have to go into Ukraine and make that journey.
0: been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Assistant Foreign Editor, Maxim Tucker. You can read more of Maxim's work from the frontline in Ukraine at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Edward Drummond, Priyanka Deladia, Olivia Case, and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.